It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We talk about all things fitness and health here. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Either way, I really think you're going to enjoy this week's podcast. It's episode 144. We're talking with Adam Meekins, the sports physio. We talk about soft tissue work, what it is, what it does, what it doesn't do. We talk about injury, pain, injury risk reduction, learning, and my favorite topic, arguing on the internet. All that and much, much more on this week's podcast. But before that, a few quick announcements. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. We are back in person. Live seminars in 2021 will happen. It's a two-day seminar. Austin Brocky and I and the rest of the Barbell Medicine crew put these on. Uh, we're going to be in San Antonio in August. We'll be in Philadelphia in October, and we'll be at Alan Thrall's Gym, Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California in November. All of these seminars are live and available for you to sign up on the website. I'll put a link in the description below. And finally, we will be doing a pain and rehab seminar. When I say we, of course, I mean Dr. Derek Miles and Dr. Michael Ray of our pain and rehab team. Uh, dates and locations on that TBD, but we're thinking fall 2021. If you don't think that you're going to be able to make it, we still have the recording from our January virtual seminar. So all the lectures were recorded, lightly edited for formatting purposes. Also, the Q&A is included in that, so you can uh, purchase that. You can watch it at your own leisure. And uh, yep. It's available for CEUs if you're a physical therapist or if you're a chiropractor and uh, also if you're a personal trainer, you should be able to apply those to maintain your certification. And hey, if you just want to learn more about pain and rehab, that's a seminar for you. Okay, enough stalling. Let's hop into this week's podcast with Adam Meekins, the sports physio. Hello, my name is Adam Meekins and I am a physiotherapist and a strength and conditioning specialist uh, in England, uh, just outside of London. Uh, a little bit about my background is I haven't always been a physiotherapist. So many, many years ago, uh, I left school and uh, went into the military for a few years. So I had a bit of experience with that uh, and then left the military and did my first degree in sports science, got a Bachelor of Science learning about exercise and periodization and physiology and then started to work as a personal trainer and a strength coach in various different roles and coming across individuals with injury and pain and not sure how to proceed or what to do is what finally led me into my interest into physiotherapy. And my role now currently is split between private practice and the public healthcare system that we have in the UK, the National Health Service, where I specialize in the management and treatment of upper limb conditions in musculoskeletal injuries and pain and dysfunction. Uh, so I work two days a week in the NHS in an orthopedic and trauma triage role. So I work in a fracture clinic there as well as an, uh, an elective orthopedic clinics, helping the consultants there triage people with problems, deciding what's the best course of action for them, and then private practice as well, just uh, seeing the routine things, mostly upper limb. Most people come to see me for an upper limb condition, but I do still see people with back complaints and lower limb complaints, but just not as often. So that's a little bit about my background in a nutshell. Perfect. Yeah, obviously, Adam's got great uh, social media presence. His website is excellent, and his background in education are well they coincide nicely with what we do here at barbell medicine so we're super excited to have you on the podcast thanks for joining us um uh, yeah it, it's actually perfect because a lot of the people we end up interviewing and talking to don't work in practice anymore they've kind of transitioned fully to this either online sort of coaching mm -hmm. thing or consulting or uh subject matter expert and so you're still in the trenches you still see people yeah who I, I i've been what nearly 20 years now in the trenches, so to speak. And it's something that I, I do relish and I do enjoy still doing. So it does get harder sometimes with the uh, restrictions that we've obviously had recently with the COVID situation and uh, the, uh, the problems the so, NHS has with lack of funding and support and everything. So it can be quite frustrating. But no, I still still relish the, the ability to be able to say – still see people, assess people, triage people, and uh, say in, in various different settings, I find the uh, the public sector work is uh, is quite challenging and interesting, but it's completely different from what I do in, in private work as well. So in, in terms of how I approach things and the time you have to be able to talk to people, it's, it's completely different. Yeah, it's a whole other unique set of challenges 
I mean, we get spoiled when we have people come in for like a pain and rehab consult or they just want performance coaching or whatever. They almost have unlimited resources, as it were, to like do the thing. Whereas you have not only finite amount of time to talk to these people, but when you suggest, yeah, I'd like you to go to the gym or even in your own home, do these things. And they're like, I don't have time for that. I don't have the equipment. I don't, I can't. And you're like, "Uh how do I make, how do I help you? Right. It's, it's a whole nother ball of wax. Whereas on the internet, we tend to argue on the fringes. (laughs) It's like, well, how do we actually help these, the, uh, the gen pop? Um, so yeah, if you're unfamiliar with, with Adam Eakins, obviously all of his stuff's going to be the description below excellent website. Like I said, and his social media content is as the kids say, fire. Uh, (laughs) one article that I really, I think this was one of maybe the first ones I actually kind of went through and read and really, really, I guess resonated with me was this, uh, the physical therapists kind of transitioning to using more strength conditioning type approaches during their rehab. Um, which on the one hand I'm supportive of, cause I'm like, great, we're using like evidence-based training principles. That's great. But then there's kind of a dark side to it, which the article kind of goes into like, well, is this actually helping folks? Is this like well-programmed? Is this appropriate? Um, I guess before we kind of delve into that, what's your take? Like how are most physical therapists using exercise in uh, and for like injury rehab? If you had to generalize, I know that's dangerous. It is, it is. Again, I've got some quite strong views and opinions on this. And to anybody listening to say, if I do upset or offend you, uh, it's not my intention. It's just my personal opinions on these things, but from my experience in, uh, in many different fields, but no, I find a lot of physiotherapists, particularly again in the UK, which is where I see most of it happening is, uh, their ability to prescribe and give and dose exercises is very, very poor. Um, and, and again, I think part and parcel of the training and the education they get, which tends to be more focused on, the manual therapy and the hands-on stuff. So the time is spent further there, which robs time out from their training and their education around good exercise uh, prescription. So now I find a lot of physios, unfortunately, are not the best at prescribing exercises, considering different parameters, considering tailoring it to the individual based on their ability, their pathology, their current situation, their experience. I just find it yeah, pretty pretty disappointing, really. I, I do see things slowly changing, but it is glacial in how quick it's occurring. Um, but there are some changes now where we're beginning to see some more of the undergraduate programs in the UK now taking more time to educate physios on exercise physiology and just do the basics, you know, just try and get those up to some level of uh, suitability. But I also blame a lot with exercise prescription for physios being so poor at it squarely on the motor control paradigm so these beliefs of using to use certain specific corrective exercises where they have to be done in the particular way they've got to be specific and they've got to be done normally at about 10 percent of one rep max you know to (laughs) achieve some mythical curative ability uh i i squarely blame that philosophy which has been embedded in physiotherapy well as long as i can remember and i think probably decades if not centuries before i was a physio and so I, I squarely blame that as a as a big reason why I think physios don't prescribe exercise too well because they are too busy making things look pretty and perfect rather than getting things nice and robust and resilient. And that often, as I say, I think causes more problems than it solves. Sure. Yeah, you have to isolate the particular fibers of your trapezius to, <laughs> yeah. you know, get rid of this mid-thoracic, you know, back pain or whatever. And it ends up being this kind of not only funky looking exercise, which look, I don't really care what it looks like, but also maybe ineffective. And then, you know, the other issues that the injury, the the natural course of it is that it's going to regress back to the mean. It's like, oh, look, it worked. And so then you get this sort of, you get this positive feedback. Well, see, I did this, this was the outcome. So now that's what you do. And then 20 years later, you, yeah. And then I, I agree that the expectation of a, a physical therapist is that you're the exercise expert you've got all this information, you're the expert, you're the professional, so just tell me what to do. And it, I don't know that that should be our assumption going in. I think being a rehab specialist, knowing that, the you know, how different injuries kind of respond to different sorts of management, sure, that should be within the scope. But as far as like, yeah, being a 
programming with exercise programming whiz or strength conditioning professional, I feel like that's an additional level of training that many PTs probably aren't getting in, in Absolutely. their education. I, I think one of the biggest reasons that, again, a lot of physios are poor at it is because they don't engage in exercise themselves. I find a lot they of They don't them, train. They don't yeah. train. They don't, they don't do it themselves. And therefore, you know, there's a lot of fear and anxiety about asking people to do heavy resistance. And uh, that's just purely because of their lack of experience of doing it themselves. I think uh, there was a study that came out in the UK where we surveyed UK physiotherapists exercise habits. Uh, and I think it was only 40% were meeting the World Health Organization's recommendations for cardiovascular exercise. Wow. And about 20% were actually engaging in any regular resistance exercise, uh, similar to the general population as well, which I just find, you know, pretty disappointing as, as movement experts, exercise specialists, whatever you want to call us, surely we should be practicing what we're preaching. And uh, it just sure. doesn't seem to be the case. And again, I'm sure that's for various different reasons. But yeah, I, I do think a lot of physios have some pretty squiffy ideas about exercise because they don't engage with it that much themselves. Yeah, which, which speaks to a broader issue. Like it's obviously not an education problem, meaning like, oh, I wasn't aware that there are physical activity yeah. guidelines or that I didn't know that exercise was good for me. I don't think that's the limitation for most folks. Like, no. huh, turns out exercise is useful. It's just, you know, either, and it's probably not in this particular cohort access. They obviously have access to, you know, different facilities and, and resources or whatever. It's, is it a time thing? Is it a belief system thing? Like, you know, hard to say, but yeah, uh, our healthcare professionals are not doing any better than the gen pop. And that's a systemic issue, not only PTs, but also MDs, DOs, chiropractic, like across the board. So yep. yeah, that's, that's one aspect of this problem. The other aspect that I think that article really made me kind of think about and, and challenge some of my own beliefs was that you do have these physical therapists that maybe do train and, you know, are involved in the strength and conditioning field on some level, and they're prescribing, you know, five by fives for, oh, you got knee, you got knee pain or whatever. We got to do five by five squats or whatever. And it's like, I don't know that it's almost seems like we would prefer that, you know, more, but is that really helpful? I don't know. What's your, what's your take on that other, the other side of the Yeah, coin? no, I, I, it's like anything. I think we, we do see pendulum swing quite a lot when there's new ideas and new sort of, you know, things on the on the scene and i do find you know the, the few individuals that have taken up the you know interest into strength and conditioning they have i think sometimes taking it a bit too black and white and they still can't see the nuance around it uh, and how you know we've got to sometimes although use strength and conditioning principles the population as you know we're dealing with with people with pain predominantly we've got to consider that there are other aspects to the prescription of exercise that we give outside of the strength and conditioning principles that we would use when we're trying to get somebody stronger or better conditioned. You know, we have to sometimes recognize, you know, there are other ways to skin a cat to use a saying that, you know, we don't have to use these principles in strength and conditioning all the time as rigidly uh, as we think we do sometimes. But yeah, I I, I know I, I wrote about that and I had, had a bit of concern of seeing a few people do it, but it is still, it is a minority. The vast majority are still sure. prescribing very, very poorly underloaded exercises. And as I said, I've got a bias where I'd much prefer somebody to try and challenge something a bit more and perhaps have a little bit of an adverse reaction to it and sort of learn through that sort of exposure than just pissing along in the background ineffectively doing nothing and just waiting for natural history and time to help somebody i think that's a that is a bit more despondent and a bit more frustrating for me to witness and observe where i see just physios just coasting along and say natural history making them look good i don't like that yeah. at all yeah i think I, I would agree i would love if the pendulum swung uh yeah. tor more towards the snc side but yeah uh, that would also require some additional education, I think, for for a lot of PTs to get to that to get to that point. So, Absolutely. if you had to, we get a lot of PTs and PT students listening to this. So, if you were like giving them, you know, a couple of points to to take home, to how how do they get better? Uh, what would you uh, What would you say? Well, again, it's like anything. Knowledge is uh, is the key. So you gotta you gotta learn more. You gotta assimilate more information. And uh, there's no quick way to doing that. Everybody says to me, you know, what's the quickest way I can learn things? And I'm like, there is no quick fix. <laughs> it takes time. It takes effort. You know, you gotta read 
research. You've got to read papers. You've got to talk to experts. You've got to read what they've got to say. You've got to, you've got to experience it yourself. So, you know, it's like any new skill and task. It's, it's being patient. It's not expecting you to suddenly understand it and all to click. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree with me. It's, you know, after years of doing it, there's still huge areas of gray and, you know, uncertainty and uh, knowledge gaps. And it's trying to manage that. It's trying to deal with that. It's trying to tolerate that. Um, but then just just keep reading. That's what I keep advising a lot of students is just keep reading and, let's say, talking to people and seeking out difference of views and opinions and, and just don't think black and white. You know, I think that's sometimes a, a failure, I think, of some of the evidence-based practice paradigm that we see a bit. A lot of people enter into evidence-based practice with the belief that it's going to give them very clear and distinct answers. You know, you go and read a research paper, it's going to tell you what to do. And I think that's, again, just a little bit of lack of training and understanding and passing down to, to people that are engaging in the evidence to say, look, all that does is it just gives you an appreciation of probability. It just mm -hmm. allows you to tolerate uncertainty a bit better but you'll say the more you start to read you'll start to understand that there are very few yes or no answers or black or white answers it's <laughs> all shades of gray yes i wish there were more yes or no answers that would make oh, all too. of our jobs a lot easier <laughs> yeah. yeah the the other thing i would probably add on that to tie it in a bow is get involved yourself you gotta you're gonna have even if you don't not training for you know a competition or whatever you got to exercise you got to yeah. at least meet the guidelines and then and take a friend particularly a colleague I, you know ideally if you got if we had half of pts you know future physical therapists or active physical therapists and then other healthcare professionals exercising oh boy yep. i i only can predict the trickle down effect to the patient population so start training today. But if you're listening to the Barbell Medicine podcast, you're probably already training, I would assume. Yeah, I think you've got, yeah, you're talking to already converted audience. But, you know, as, as you say, I think, you know, to those that are listening to this that do regularly train with resistance and cardiovascular exercises, you say try and pass that on to others. Try to, you know, enthuse those that don't have the same sort of passion or, you know, ideology as you do. Try and pass a bit of that over to them, and say, drag them down the gym. Maybe kicking and yep. screaming sometimes, but yeah, no, I think it's a good point. Yeah, I had a a guy. He's a PT student in my in my DMs, asking me about you know his, uh, his workouts in a home gym and, and this and the other because he didn't have a lot of equipment. And uh, I finally said, I was like, you know, I'd rather you went to a commercial gym or or the university gym or wherever and trained a few times, not only to like have more access to equipment, but like see people and be seen so that way you know how do you socially engage with your colleagues rather than just being locked up in your home home train gym training is great don't get me wrong but it's like how do you meet other folk like-minded individuals how do you you know engage socially to to kind of change the perception of what strength training can do and and and, and access and stuff well you gotta yeah you gotta be out there be public so um anyway yeah. just don't lock right. yourself in your home well uh, <laughs> I was, yeah as was, a was, Totally going to say that. You said home training is great. I've been in, my, this is our third lockdown in the UK now, and it's been four months where the gyms have been shut. So we haven't been able to enter into gyms since beginning of November. And I am Ugh. fucked off with home training now. It's, <laughs> it, it is properly doing my head in now, training in my spare bedroom, out in my garden, you know, going, going for runs is all right around the house and stuff around the home. But, you know, just doing resistance training at home, I've just really struggled with these last few months thanks to bloody COVID. Oh, yeah. So we had uh, our first lockdown here was like, obviously similar to, I think similar to your guys, just very strict. And uh, I actually put a gym in a, in a, a storage unit, which has one light hanging in the middle. And then, you know, there's no sunlight, there's no, nobody else in there. And I was like, I could die in here. <laughs> and nobody would find me until my credit card, like got declined at some point for paying the rent and just be my corpse. And so happily our gyms have, have reopened and uh looks like we're turning a corner but uh good stuff. Yeah, yeah. unique struggles there mm -hmm. all right on to a probably even more controversial topic but one that i love manual therapy i think people if they do know you they're like oh meekins is the manual therapy you hate you know. he hates yeah. it yeah. he hates it he would never touch a patient ever he just yeah. so let's i think there's like two separate issues here we talk about both uh what's your your take on manual therapy for just pain reduction just like a, if you had to if you're trying to explain your position on that um 
And then we can later talk about injury risk reduction and manual therapy for that. But let's start out with pain. So what's the utility or what is manual therapy? and What's its utility for pain? Yeah, well, again, people will describe manual therapy with different meaning different things. For me, it's basically anything that's done over an extended period of time. So I'm talking, you know, not something that's just touching somebody for five seconds or something like that. It's it's done for a period of time uh, and it's done in a specific way because it's believed to achieve specific effects. So that can be a soft tissue technique that you believe you have to rub it in a certain way at a certain pressure. It can be a joint mobilization technique where you have to push a joint in a certain angle. And of course, obviously you've got your manipulations where you have to thrust it at a certain speed or that sort of stuff as well to create a specific tissue-based, joint-based effect then that's thought to create a, an improvement in somebody's pain or function or ability. So that's what I define manual therapy. And I think the big three, I say soft tissue work, massages, and then you've got your joint mobilizations and your manipulations. Um, but yeah, I think my biggest issue is that it doesn't do what we have been led to believe it does. Um, there is, you know, a growing large body of evidence to show that it has very non-specific effects. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't work. And again, this is a common straw man of my position on manual therapy. Everybody says, I think manual therapy doesn't work. I say, no, it's, it can, it can reduce pain and it can make things feel better. I'm not denying that at all. It just doesn't do it the way you think it does it. It does not do it in a specific skilled way. So there are other reasons why manual therapy makes something feel different. And it's normally a neurological response. It's either, you know, actually playing around with sensory processing or it's down to you know a cognitive effect a psychological effect where it's either down to beliefs or expectations or past experiences but either way it's just it's it's playing around with neurophysiology that's all it's doing Uh, and the effects are variable um, and they often are short-lasting so again i use this analogy with manual therapy it's a bit like a mcdonald's where you know (laughs) It, it has that very short, satisfying effect, but actually isn't really the best thing to be doing over a long term. So I, I use, as I say, I explain it in that very sort of simplistic and then analogous way that I say treat manual therapy a bit like a McDonald's. Now, one or two McDonald's every now and again ain't the worst thing in the world. Um, but, you know, if you're going to have it every week, every session, every time you go in, you're probably not doing an individual's health, lifestyle, probably any favors. So I've moved away from it completely now. So I I phased it out slowly. I didn't just suddenly wake up one day hating manual therapy and stop doing it. It took me a process of time. You know, I was very fascinated it when I first came out as a young physio. I wanted to learn more about it, get all the secrets and the techniques. Um, You know, and I was quite passionate about doing that. Spent thousands of pounds if not more, on courses, on postgraduate education, got all the certificates, jumped through all the hoops of assessment. uh, And then I just slowly started to be exposed to more research, more evidence that was, you know, the opposite of what I've been told that was conflicting. And that started to create, you know, a bit of cognitive dissonance in me, started to get me to question things a bit more, started to get me a bit more skeptical. And then I did have a kickback. I did, I felt cheated. I felt robbed. I felt hoodwinked. So I did have a bit of a kickback probably 10 years ago where I was very, very aggressively against manual therapy. And I still am a little bit now because I still find, again, like most things, it's a slow change, but progress is slow. People still pedal out the same old bullshit there's still also the the thing that really annoys me around manual therapy is the arrogance and elitism that surrounds it as well now i know that's in the exercise field as well i see that all the time as well but manual therapy arrogance and elitism just pisses me off more these individuals walking around with this belief that they've got jedi powers of healing you know they can get the electrical tingles through their fingertips and they can create tissue changes and realignments in subluxations and they think they're, you know, God's gift. And it just it just annoys the hell out of me. It really does. Really <laughs> fucking frustrates me. <laughs> I just end up I just end up getting really angry at it. And I'm like, just be more human, just be more rational about it. You know, I, I can understand sometimes it takes a while to get exposed to different ideas and opinions, but 
you know, it's 2021 now. It's not like we're still in 1980s where people didn't have access to as much information. Surely there is no excuse for not understanding there's other views and opinions out there. But yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to shut up now because I do get quite ranty when I talk about <laughs> therapy. Yeah. I mean, I can understand the, the resistance to sort of accepting that manual therapy may not be doing what people have been led to believe, particularly if they've invested a lot of money and time yeah. and sort of maybe even personal identity and like, you know, the fact that, oh, I've got these magic hands or these specific techniques that can help people. And look, I, I did this and it helped the person. Um, in addition to the fact, like it creates value for their services, right? Like if you, if you come see a person who's like ART or Graston or Rolfing or ISD, whatever yeah. other soft tissue therapy certified, like that's their thing. And if yeah. they go on to accept, like it's probably not doing the thing that we think it is as far as creating like tissue changes to subsequently create an improvement in pain or reduction of pain and improvement in performance or function, then what can they do? They almost are like, well, now I can't do anything. I'm just a person. <laughs> and then it's like, yeah. it's really hard then that's their identity chip being challenged. And at a core, if that's a core belief, Oh boy, I don't know if any, if all the research in the world can get somebody to like want to change their identity. No, that's that human effect again in it. When we uh, very much attach ourselves to a certain way of thinking or a certain way of acting and doing things. And then something comes along and challenges that. Yeah. Very much gets the old cognitive dissonance kicked off and makes it very hard to, to change practice and also again i think the other driver is is the financial aspect of it as well sure. you know it's, it's a it's a key driver with healthcare changes is to say is just, you know practice tends to change when you stop getting paid for it you know at the moment <laughs> right. at the moment yeah. a lot of people get paid to do cupping and the scraping and the needling and the sticking and it, it it's you know in terms of physiotherapy practice it is probably the more lucrative side of reimbursement Compared to, you know, education, empathy, reassurance, good exercise. (laughs) Nobody gives a fuck about that. You're not going to earn your money, you know, just being a nice, caring, empathetic person to somebody. You don't get reimbursed as well as you do for scraping, rubbing, poking and pressing them. Yeah. Yeah. Until the reimbursement model changes, you know, it's probably going to be difficult to change practice. Um, Yeah. So I, I think just for the listeners at home, if... You listen to all that and you're like, all right, so what does he really think? What do we really think? It's nobody here is saying that manual therapy does not improve people's subjective ratings of pain or even objective uh, function, particularly in the short term. But the the, the reason why it's working is probably unrelated to the specific technique and any particular tissue changes. It's more complicated than that. And it doesn't necessarily work reliably either, which is kind of like, well, why are we doing it on everybody? Why is that like the first line treatment um, for people with existing pain? And then to go to the next part of this question, like injury or pain risk reduction, like people are doing this as like a preventative modality. Like I used to work with a, a number of competitive CrossFitters and they would have quote unquote, like body work sessions scheduled multiple times per week. I got to go see my guy or my, or my girl to get this body work done so I don't get injured, so I don't have pain, so I can recover better. And it's like you're spending hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a month to get rubbed on and scraped on and cupped on and look like a, well, a silly person <laughs> with all these wounds on you. <laughs> and, love and for, bites, and for, yeah. yeah, love, right, right. Uh, you know, or like even when Michael Phelps had all these cupping marks, people were like, I'm sure cupping at that point. <laughs> If oh, there was this publicly there, traded stock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's your take on, on this soft tissue therapy for like pain or injury risk reduction? It's nonsense in a nutshell. It's, uh, it's, it's just got no plausibility or, you know, any sort of robust evidence or science behind it. So I'd say, no, it's, uh, it's just not that simple. Again, as you know, and the listeners know, you know, injury reduction is a complex, nuanced area. There is no one single isolated factor that helps significantly reduce injury. I mean, you know, we looked, we were all excited about acute to chronic workload ratios not so long ago, didn't we? We started ranting about, you know, how about load was the the key thing. And it is an important factor, but, you know, it's not the only thing. In fact, I know I work with athletes who can have massive peaks in their load and not get injured. 
And yet there's other athletes and other individuals I work with who just get a tiny little fluctuation and it breaks them down. And it's normally because of the other factors around what's going on in their background, their lifestyle and everything else around that at the time. So again, it's not just as simple as load. It's not just as simple as range of movement. It's not just as simple as technique. And it certainly isn't about bloody soft tissue mobility or joint mobilizations. That's for sure. Trigger points. Yeah. That helps prevent injury. I mean, it's, if it's anything, it's, you know, it's what I'd class as one of the one percenters. You know, when you talk about trying to reduce risk of injury i'd say it's you know it's possibly got you know, a small effect a one percent effect but you know you're not you're not going to waste time or money on doing things that have a one percent risk reduction when there's other things that have got a 50 60 70 or 80 percent risk reduction you know are you sleeping are you recovering well are you eating well now if you're doing all the big rocks and you're doing all the big things and you've got the time and the energy and the enthusiasm and the money and the time yeah knock yourself out go and have your scraping go and have your cupping go and have your yeah, whatever it is, you know, you're fluffing and your myofascial releases. But yeah, but I would say, you know, if you're doing that as a first line defense and you're not looking at other factors that we do know have bigger effects on your risk uh, profile, then I think, yeah, yeah, you're missing out. And that's where I think the harm comes in sometimes with it. You know, they can distract people away from things that are better doing. And that's what everyone says to me. What's the harm with a bit of a massage? What's the harm with manipulation? You know, it's not got any serious detriment to people. I'm like, well, no, it hasn't serious. It's not going to kill anybody, sure. You know, there's no risk there. But the risk is you take the time and their attention away from something that could be serving them better. Sure. Yeah, I agree. In addition to the the narratives kind of built around those techniques. So, so if you went and got a massage, for example, and the massage therapist or professional didn't say a word to you other than like, Hey, how you doing? You know, and talked about your day or whatever, almost like a, a, a you know, a psychiatric sort of counseling session, yeah. uh, that would be one thing, but that's usually not how this goes, particularly for like this preventative maintenance, if you will. It's like, Oh, you got a knot here. You've got yeah. an adhesion here. You got some really not, you know, tough tissue or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, so then you start building this mechanical narrative of like, this is why you would have pain. This is why you would have dysfunction. And so then people are like, okay, so I have uh, this structure based pain sort of narrative being built up in addition to like an increased threat being built up over time. You know, like if I don't do this, oh boy, I'm in trouble. And it's, uh, so that's probably a bigger harm in addition to like, yeah, time. And then also like other stuff. I would rather if someone's like, Hey, would you rather me go get a massage for 30 minutes or spend 30 minutes, like meditating in a quiet room, you know, doing some self-reflection. I'm like, pick the meditation. Absolutely. You know? I'm the same. Yeah. I, or like, somebody relax. says to me as well about, what was it about, you know, trying to flush out toxins from the muscle. They were saying to me, oh, but, you know, I get this lymphatic drainage that flushes the toxins out of my muscles afterwards. It reduces, and I'm like, that's just not how it works. I said, look, if you, want, if you really, really wanted to, you know, flush out toxins after exercise, I said, go for a walk. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know, the metabolic demand at low, you know, intensity is going to increase a little bit of extra blood flow into the muscle, and it's the blood flow going through the muscle that's got the far better option of flushing out any waste products after exercises than than a bloody massage would do yeah particularly if you got a very hard sort of soft tissue session where somebody's really like if you got bruises afterwards what do you think the yeah. challenge is to your yeah. system to like deal with that maybe there maybe was you a take study a that actually showed it did they, they they looked at blood lactate levels i, I sometimes use this study when yep. i'm talking about when you know, they looked at blood lactate levels after fatiguing exercises for the forearms they asked individuals to work their hands uh till fatigue and then they took blood lactate levels, I think every minute for the next 10 minutes immediately afterwards. And they compared it in three different environments, either doing nothing, uh, just active movements, light active movements with the hands or having um, a massage. And they actually showed that the blood lactate levels remained higher in the massage group afterwards yeah. than compared to just doing nothing. So it may yeah. impede, you know, the natural blood flow through the muscle and actually delay the sort of recovery process possibly. Yeah, there was another mechanistic study where they did a massage. They they were used Doppler, so ultrasound to see where the blood flow was going, yeah. and it looked like that the blood flow was being diverted away from the yeah. muscles in a way and towards the yeah. skin, which is where yeah. they're actually rubbing. So you're like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you had like a skin lesion, maybe yeah, encourage maybe. <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So, but between the harmful like narrative that's potentially built around that and then just the time and resource requirement. Yeah. I don't, I guess I just don't see a reason to routinely recommend it and, and rather routinely recommend against it. Um, most people will be better served by yeah, either sleeping more, maybe even taking a nap if they've got a big sleep debt built up, uh, working on dietary, you know, patterns, eating environments, food environments, uh, working on training more, exercising more, <laughs> considering yeah. the sedentarism epidemic that we're, yep. we're in, yep. uh, and interacting in meaningful ways with their social circle. Like, Absolutely. I mean, you did all those things. I don't even know if you'd be asking me a question about cupping. You'd just be like, man, I'm satisfied. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm content. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So we think we wrap that in a nice little bow. Now, this is my favorite topic because it's near and dear to my heart. And I feel like you and I are similar on this. We just, we can't resist. You just can't, like you want to resist and go about your day and not spend time doing this, but also there's an importance in combating misinformation. So we're going to talk about arguing on the internet. And, uh, so yeah. Do you find first off just like, who's more argumentative? Is it other, is it experts in the field or, or people with, you know, certain levels of training in the field, or is it just lay people without any formalized training? I find it's varied, Jordan. I find there's a lot of variation as to who is the, the ones that are argumentative and who are the ones that are they just ignore it. So again, I don't want to name any names and get any liable or litigation issues, but there are some social media influences that just totally ignore any criticism and they just do not engage in anything at all. So, and they've got massive followings and I think their, their strategy is just ignore it and it doesn't cause me any, or whether it causes them any personal distress, I don't know, but it just doesn't cause them any effect to their public profile. They just let it just simmer and die off. But then there are others that very much, you know, do go at it and defend their positions really noisy. And they tend to do it, you know, in that sort of group mentality, get their followers and their advocates as well to back them up and, you know, start throwing around anecdotes and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I find it's it varies a lot from person to person as to who argues and who doesn't. And it is something that is, you know, not got any quick answers or any simple way of resolving you know how we try to debate online easier better more adult because i've made horrendous mistakes in the past over the years doing it you know both sides of the situation you know i've been an idiot to other people when i should have perhaps listened a bit more and taken people's you know things out of context and i understand now you know you can't always get nuance across in the written form so I've learned the hard way, but it is still tricky and challenging. I think we need to do it. Again, a lot of people say we shouldn't do it because it is negative and we shouldn't do it in a public forum. But I do think bullshit needs to be called out uh, whenever we see it. I think there are some ways that are better at it than doing others, but it's finding that balance, man. I find, you know, if you're too polite or too quiet it just gets ignored it just gets like no nobody pays any attention to it it's just you know something that's just whispering in the background if you go in a little bit too hot and too aggressive then yeah that creates such a big kickback effect that again the actual point you're trying to make gets lost as well so it's it's trying to get that balance where you want to say something quite robust you want to say something quite strong you want to stand your position you want to have some backing for that as well um and then try to engage in a debate with people. But yeah, easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's more of a personality type than like a level of Definitely training. Personalities, yeah. Personalities. <laughs> yeah. And I think again, money when it comes to it at the end of the day, some people, you know, they're vested not to, you know, have their secret sauce and their recipes exposed because that very much will affect their income. So I think that's a fact. Yeah. They're paid not to understand, you know, on some Absolutely, level. Yeah. Um, which, which this kind of raises, you know, a, a larger issue. I, I find it hard to believe that anybody's actively trying to put out harmful or bad information. Like the idea that there's people with nefarious intent, like, ooh, I'm going to go and say this, even though I know it to be wrong. It seems unlikely that people are doing that. I certainly think people will say stuff that's controversial to try to make a buzz and, and you know, generate traffic to their page and business and whatever. But as far as like doing it, wrong stuff i don't know i'll save for april 1st but uh do we give influencers particularly those with like a large following do we give them a pass for saying stuff that's not quite right maybe even potentially a little harmful 
as just so long as they're trying to help? Like, do we get, do we allow that to transpire? I mean, you already uh, said you got to push back against bullshit and I'm yeah. in agreement on some level, but it's kind of like, I'm curious to hear your take. If they're trying to help. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. And again, I think it, it depends on lots of factors and context and everything along those lines. You know, is it, is it a one-off? Is it a re- recurrent thing that's happening? Is somebody doing it all the time? Is it deliberate? Is it unintentional? You know, all these sort of things, I think, you know, they, they'll, for me anyway, they'll decide whether I let somebody pass or whether I think I'll, uh, I'll say something. And of course, you know, your own side of it, can you be bothered? Can you feel you got the energy and the enthusiasm to do it? All these things, you know, I think after coming to play is to deciding whether you, you challenge something, correct something. And, and again, the other issue is how correct do we have to be to actually get a message across to some people as well? So I think, you know, I do give people sometimes, yeah, that little bit of leniency to say, all right, that's not 100% correct, but, you know, the, the, the vast majority of what you're saying is, is okay. So, you know, that can slide. Um, so, again, I think it's, it's just finding that balance, I think. And, yeah, sometimes it's trickier and easier than others. Yeah, I think the the stakes probably matter. Like if somebody's talking about exercise selection, for example, and they're saying, "Oh, this particular type of squat is better for I don't know yeah. leg hypertrophy," and I'm like, "I don't care." That may be yeah. wrong or not entirely correct, but like, look, yeah. man, if we could just get more people squatting, period, or doing any sort of physical activity, like two thumbs. Yeah, up. That, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was about to say is that I think you know the ones that I do probably engage and uh, sort of interact with and challenge more of those individuals that are putting people off from moving. So I, I think if you, if you're acting as a, as a nocebo, as you're acting as something, you know, that you're putting some fear, some doubt into somebody moving or exercising, I mean, exercise and engaging it on a regular basis is, is challenging and hard enough. And we don't want to add more barriers and challenges to that. So yeah, if somebody is encouraging somebody to move and they're trying to do it in a say slightly incorrect way, uh, you know whatever that means, I, I'm like, yeah, I'll let that slide. But somebody who's doing the opposite, who's putting people off from engaging in stuff, that's the bit I'll probably push back against more. Yeah, yeah, if the stakes are high, I find it hard to just let it go because I'm it, one, it bothers me at like a core level, and then I'm just like, ah, oh, you're hurting people. Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, it's frustrating, and then. Um, it also seems to me if the more that I let slide, which is it is that's almost Austin's technique in a way because he's just like I can't be bothered. There's just too much crap out there. I'll put out good information, people will find it, whatever. But the more yeah. I do, I'm like, we're just allowing this race to the bottom where people will say progressively less correct things in order to like generate a buzz or generate a following. And I'm just like, I don't want that. I want, <laughs> I want everybody to be held to a high standard. Let's do that together. Yeah. And and I think again, you know, it's it's finding that balance and I sort of can understand what Austin's saying because I've done that many a times as well. I've been done this now for quite a few years, but I, I do agree with what you've said as well. You know, I think, you know, we do need to challenge some people because they, they need to know that there is some repercussion for putting out information there that may be incorrect. I think that's the problem is a lot of people just, you know, they, they want the reward, they want the praise. But, you know, if you're going to put out information that's incorrect, you've got to also accept that there's going to be kickback, there's going to be resistance, and there's going to be people saying you're an idiot. So I do think that's important for people to actually stop and think, right, is this what is what I'm putting out? Because nobody really likes getting that feedback. Nobody would say, you know, getting the shit, getting, getting called an idiot and everything. Nobody really likes that. So if that happens, and it's happened to me a couple of times, when that's happened, it has made me stop and think, right, the next thing I put out about this, I want to make sure I have got this as clear and as accurate and as concise as I possibly can because I don't want that shit flowing, blowing back up in my face again. So, yeah, I think, you know, there is that other aspect. It does help people think and perhaps take stock of what they're posting out there and when they get challenged and critiqued a bit, yeah. So it is important yeah. to do. It's like yeah. the pinball method. It's like every time, you know, you hit a pinball up into the pinball machine and then you you nick something on the way down. You're like, ooh, nick another yeah. thing on the way, ooh. And then yeah. the next time you go to, you, you kind of have a better strategy for communicating like what you're, what you're doing. Um, I, I guess the other th- thing is like when you do get challenged, it does modify your confidence 
in what you're saying in addition to understanding the other side of the argument. So like actual subject matter experts kind of understand the critiques of their position. And then when they are crafting their message, they're like, I need to make sure to allow for that critique or counter that critique or somehow incorporate it. So that way I'm not claiming something out of proportion to either what the evidence says or where we currently stand. And that's the big difference between actual subject matter experts and people just saying bullshit online. They'll, you know, read one abstract to one study, make a post, and it's like, okay, but we're missing all of this other context. There's no nuance. I love also that people are just, that's my buzzword. I got trolled for saying this for like years. People are like, oh, you say nuance all the time. I'm like, well, it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, and so, but yeah, the, the actual experts will like almost prepare for that in a way they'll say, here's what I think. Uh, but this, this, and this are like areas that we don't even know, really know that much. And I'm kind of wishy-washy and that is very correct and, and, and useful. I find, however, the public, they want concrete answers. They want you to tell them like, this is the way do this. There's no gray zone. Whereas, I think as you get more and more educated, you're like, you, uh, yeah, can live with that uncertainty. Uh, but I don't know that that plays that well online. It seems like people just yeah. say that you're wishy-washy or playing from both sides or whatever. Yeah. I think again, it comes across as being, you know, that if you are toying with uncertainty and you're trying to find the balance in between, it can come across as like you're, you're uncertain. You don't know what you're talking about. You have, you haven't taken a stand, you haven't taken a position, but yeah, trying to, find the balance sometimes is not as well received as being somebody that's very clear and distinct and say, yep, it's definitely this way. This is the way it needs to be done. Where somebody goes, "Eh, it could be this way. It could be a bit of that way. It depends. You know, yeah. A lot of people just don't appreciate that these days, I'm afraid. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're yeah. just like, nah, well, I like the guy or the gal who's saying yeah. it's just this way. I'm gonna, Yeah, I'm when gonna someone's go definite, they must know what they're talking about. Yeah. yeah. History has shown that not to be the case. No, exactly right. Uh, Say it's littered with, uh, say, examples of some pretty horrendous mistakes made by people who were very, very certain about things. Sure. Uh, For not to name names, but most harmful thing you've seen in the fitness space in in recent in recent past. Uh, For me, I I, just with COVID being what it is. I see my feed is littered with not ne- not COVID deniers anymore, but but uh, I call it vaccine fatigue. So I am I think the COVID vaccine uh, development process whatever has been one of the greatest scientific achievements of our time. It just man blown away all the stuff yeah. that went yeah. into that. And I never tire of people posting like I got my first shot today or whatever. Like that's for me, man. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But pe- there's like this fatigue where people are like, I'm sick of seeing people post their vaccine photo or whatever. I'm like, I will never tire of that. But like, do you guys remember the last 18 months? Have you been here? <laughs> like, yeah. this has been terrible. Uh, so then I think that from a social learning standpoint, people are like, oh, maybe they don't feel as good about getting the vaccine and maybe they're not as motivated. Maybe you were inadvertently like dissuading people from getting vaccinated or otherwise taking care of themselves. And I'm like, Oh, I'm so angry. But then I don't, how do I go message all these thousands of accounts and be like, Hey, you know, I think the messaging that you're putting out may be a little harmful. So that's tough for me. Uh, anything that you, that stands out to you is like, man, this is really harmful. And I, I really hate it. Oh, well, that's, uh, again, harm is a word that, you know, I suppose it means different things to different people. You know, I, I think one of the issues that we have in musculoskeletal care is that most of the harms are very, low harm compared to other harms in in medicine and surgery along those lines and i think sometimes that makes it a little bit harder for us to say this is dangerous this is you know really bad this is really risky uh so from a musculoskeletal harm point of view i think they say the biggest harm i see is people just putting others off from engaging in regular physical activity um, and again, nothing too specific, but, you know, just, you know, telling people that if you don't exercise a specific way, you're, you're probably going to be damaged or hurt or injured. That for me, I just find, as I say, is it's just really frustrating to see that as such a, a persistent and pervasive narrative across a lot of healthcare professionals, social media feeds. 
uh, and say talking about injury as if it's something clear cut and simple to predict and say if you do it this way you're going to get injured and if you do it this way you won't get injured I'm like it's as we said it's just not that simple so yeah I think you know from a harm point of view I think the harm is 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 stopping or putting people off from moving more and I think you know as movement experts movement specialists whatever you want to call it we need to be advocating the exact opposite and I don't think a lot of healthcare accounts do that they uh they do the opposite without probably knowing about it as you said I'm sure it's not always malicious in fact I think like you said it's very rarely malicious or nefarious it's just ignorance and stupidity normally yeah yeah I mean with the again this physical sedentarism epidemic because mm. not most people are not even coming close to even meeting the minimums, right? We're not even talking about like the level that's really going to improve health worldwide. One of the main barriers is this fear of injury. Like w- there's multiple studies. We've got this injury risk sort of paper we're working on. Multiple barriers exist to prevent people from being physically active. But one of the biggest ones is this fear of injury. Almost yeah. half of individuals who are not physically active, when you ask them like, Hey, why, why aren't you doing this? They go, yeah, I'm afraid of getting hurt. And then when you, the secondary question, when you ask them, well, why are you afraid? And they're like, yeah, it's either a healthcare professional that they've seen or interacted with. And it's like, I think this study I'm thinking of in particular is from 2016. I bet you if that study was done now, there'd be more. And there was a question about social media content. There would probably be some, some stuff on that. And so you have all these subject matter experts or perceived subject matter experts in this in the social media world that are saying, ah, move like this, not like that, or don't yeah. do this, never do this, never round your back, never bench with your elbows out to the side because you'll for sure get injured. And then there's like a red X and a green <laughs> check mark and like a yeah. mushroom cloud somewhere. <laughs> and you're like, how is this helping? Right. Like really though, how is it helping? If you have a particular view on technique, for example, that like it's going to improve people's efficiency from moving a load or going to improve people's results from exercise, meaning that they're going to activate or use or whatever the muscle, the targeted muscle group or groups. Cool. Post the positive, like do the, like, I think you should do it like this to improve your outcomes. Don't say, don't post the negative, like don't do this. Yeah. And I find that to, I mean, that transcends through my coaching that transcends through for either dietary patterns or for even just other behavioral changes. I I very rarely tell people like, don't do this. I rather focus on do this like, and, and work on that. You tell somebody not to do something. Like if you were, if I was coaching you, not that you would never ask, which because you know what you're doing, but I might take you up on the offer. (laughs) Maybe sure. Yeah. And, uh, we were working on your squat for example. Right. And let's just say that I saw that your knees were caving in or whatever. I wouldn't tell you, don't let your knees cave in. I would say, keep your knees out. Right. It just, it's the whole, the, the, the framework there is different. Um, so yeah, I'm in complete agreement. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you since you are in the space and you deal with this on a regular basis and likely influence a lot of aspiring coaches or coaches to be or active coaches, what should people do to gain knowledge and insight when for, for creating a, a either social media platform or, uh, or, or audience or, or even just a simple post, like what would you recommend for folks to, to do that in a more responsible, productive way? Uh, persistence and consistency, I think are the two key factors there. Like, like, just like just like with training, you know, you want results with uh, with training. You got to get started, and you got to keep going. So mm. I think you know it's the same with social media. The trouble is, is it's just it's a very noisy space. You know, there's a lot more people engaging and doing it now. Um, I think obviously having something a little bit unique does help grab attention, but you know you don't want to be bullshitting you don't want to be saying that you know you've got something unique that is you know an absolute load of rubbish but you know i think you know just be patient be consistent keep putting your message out there and and number one just be genuine as well i think that Mm -hmm. comes across a lot you know just try to be you know genuinely interested in putting information out there to gauge people's interest and yeah people will hopefully start to pay attention but it's not easy. It gets harder and harder each year as uh, more and more people are engaging on social media. Yeah. There's like this infotainment continuum, like with dry yeah. information on the one side yeah. and pure entertainment on the other side. Yeah. And then, you know, because 
everyone, particularly with the internet these days, has access to like similar levels of information. Obviously, those with lots of formal education and, and you know, academic context may have more that they have access to or certainly have been exposed to. But the, the, the amount of knowledge right now is almost, I mean, it's, it's finite in a way, like you could access it. Uh, but your individual personality is going to fall somewhere on that, ed, you know, infotainment scale or spectrum. Yeah. And you just got to like, here's where I am. This is me as a person and put your own little flavor on it. You know, your yeah. information has been said or put out there by other folks in some different way, but people identify with you. They like you, they like your message, they trust yeah. you. They want to hear it from you with your personal spin on it. And that's why you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers and successful. One of the reasons, not the only Yeah. Reason. I think there's a little bit of that as well. And to say maybe a right time in right place as well, I think helps occasionally, but no, that's a great point you mentioned there. And I just want to stress that as well is, is, you know, just because somebody has said a message before or somebody else has said something that you want to say before, it doesn't mean you can't re-say it again. I get that a lot. A lot of people said, Oh, you've, you've, you've copied so-and-so's post. You've done, you know, somebody else has already said that. Why are you saying that again? I'm say there's nothing wrong with repeating information that's good information out there uh, mm -hmm. i think it's actually important to do so don't feel pressurized to always think you have to come up with something new and original all the time because i can't remember the name of the philosopher who said it you know, i think it was whitehead or somebody says you know everything of importance has been said by somebody else who hasn't said it originally <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah probably better <laughs> yeah exactly right so again don't beat yourself up if you're trying to create content and you think, you know, oh, somebody's already said this or this is well known. It, it doesn't matter because I think, you know, the good information just needs to keep being said because it does need yep. to be assimilated. And it's like anything. Repetition is a key way of getting stuff to be to be understood and stuck. Yeah, particularly with uh, in the social sort of setting, you mm. want multiple people saying similar things and then social yep. knowledge collectively to move forward. Absolutely. Uh, not to put you on the spot, but I'm going to because here we are. <laughs> If you, uh, your top three social media accounts that you like to follow from like either an information or infotainment kind of, kind of scale. Well, yeah, I've put me on the spot now because as I say, if I, I have to name three, I'm going to piss off probably another 33 that I should have mentioned as well. So, well, I, I'll probably stick close to home with a few of my buddies then that I, uh, I work with in a close relationships. So I'm going to say Greg Lehman who is uh, a chiropractor as well as a physiotherapist and a strength and coach and a kinesiologist. I think he's got about 103 degrees. I'm not sure. I've lost count, but he's my <laughs> co-host on the, uh, the NAF Physio podcast. Uh, so I'd say go and follow his social media accounts. Uh, Instagram, he's not so active on when it comes to education. He's just in doing his gymnastics, but he is uh, on Twitter and Facebook quite a bit. Uh, ben Cormack as well, who's another colleague of mine who works with uh, us on the Better Clinician Project. So that's an online education platform that me and him have started about a year ago. Ben, again, does some great information around, you know, exercise prescription being a little bit more fluid. Me and him have some very different ideas about exercise prescription. It's quite interesting. It makes for some good conversations on the BCP because he, uh, he talks about not having to bother with you know intensities or volumes or frequencies and that just makes my teeth itch uh, <laughs> so i end up sort of having this no you've got to be a bit more specific when it comes to giving exercises to people with pain and pathologies like oh no it doesn't matter and he always gets some research to back up his opinion as well which annoys me hugely so he is hugely knowledgeable has different views and opinions to what i have done but i've learned a lot from ben so i've got to give him a good shout out as well and then the third one, who shall I choose for the third one? Well, I've got to say barbell medicine, haven't I? Hey, couldn't pay him to say that. <laughs> saved it for saved the best till the last. Go and follow barbell medicine. And well, anybody, I think, you know, the whole, the whole gang of you, the whole team of you guys and uh, girls out there, I think are excellent. So I definitely will say, yeah, good, good account to go and follow. And I'm always jealous of your bench presses and uh, squats that you guys do. You put me to shame. It's embarrassing. Well, I can do three things reasonably well. I can squat, I can bench press, I can deadlift. I'm trying to add golf to that roster, but we'll uh, <laughs> keep keep working on it. No, that that's excellent. I love the science squad. Uh, those are excellent accounts. And uh, if you're not following Adam Meekins yet, like do it. Don't, I mean, don't stop the podcast and like you know don't 
do that. Uh, but go <laughs> follow him afterwards. And his the two podcasts will link in the description below, the NAF uh, podcast and the Better Clinician Project. You guys have uh, put out some episodes there too, and there's a lot of social media uh, stuff. If you guys have been living under a rock, well, yeah, come and join us. The BCP is a, it's just a monthly subscription, no commitment or anything. So you can just sort of dip in for a very, very small nominal fee, have a look around, see if it's for you. If it isn't, then you can leave. But it's uh, it's something that we found that we've been trying to, you know, get a little bit better at is providing good quality, you know, education. But again, like you said, with that slightly different format, that's a bit engaging, it's a bit more entertaining. So we're trying to find that balance between the both and we're doing three fresh pieces of content every week so we have a research review where we look at a paper and we dissect and analyze that then we look at um, a rehab idea exercise movement base and again analyze and dissect that and then we have a, a guest on who we normally interrogate and again get some information from them as well so every say nice. all for small fee and uh, say three pieces of information every week each week definitely worth it uh two more questions one uh what are you reading these days that's uh, we like to ask our uh, guests. Yeah, sure. Reading. So, Daniel Lieberman's uh, new book, Exercised. I'm about two thirds yeah. of the way through that, and that's uh, been really, really good. So, I found that quite entertaining as well as engaging, and it sort of got a few bits in there that sort of challenge my views on uh, on the need for certain specific exercises. So, yeah, and about human evolution and all that sort of side of it, and how it helps us. Uh, I think we can be a little, I'm thinking I can be a little bit more relaxed with recovery, rest and, and being a bit more sedentary because I, uh, after listening to his book there, it's uh, given me a bit of an eye opener around that factor there. Yes. I just downloaded that on, uh, on Audible, uh, Herman Ponzer's book, Burn. I, I read that and I actually kind of contact with him and he was like, Hey, read exercised. And I was like, Oh man, another book. I love it. Yeah, somebody else so. recommended after I put out there of reading exercise. Somebody else recommended um, Burn as well. I haven't I haven't read that one. Ex yeah, excellent. It's okay. it, yeah again also challenges some ideas that I have about exercise and energy yeah. expenditure and yeah yeah so it, good books uh, for our audience. All right, and then finally, besides the NIF uh, NAF podcast and the Better Clinician Project, where can people interact with you? Find you online. Uh, well, I'm across all the social media platforms. Uh, the one I tend to engage and, and sort of use most is Twitter because I find the brevity there is a bit more appealing because it stops people ranting at me for too long. So they've only got about 280 characters that they can call me a knobhead. So I find that I like to engage a bit more on Twitter than Facebook. Uh, but I'm on Facebook as well. So I've got my sports physio account there. And then, of course, Instagram as well. So you can either just find me on that. Um, and then I've got my website, which is the sports.physio, which has got a little bit about my background, a bit more there as well, and about my um, education work that I do. I run a, a weekend course, a two-day course on management of the upper limb, so mainly around the shoulder. So it's called the shoulder complex. doesn't have to be complicated. It's all been online at the moment, but I do it live and online rather than a pre-recorded one. I find pre-recorded courses boring as hell. So I like sure. to do my my online courses live and get a bit of interaction and engagement with people. And I think people are more likely, you know, actually do the course. The amount of people I think yeah. buy online courses and don't actually bloody do them. So right. I think doing it live and online is, uh, is uh, a bit more appealing for me and for people attending. And then I'm saying uh, that's pretty much it. I'm even on TikTok now as well. Not that I use oh, no. TikTok. I know. I've just sort of dipped my toe into there to see what it's all about, and I, I I can't work it out. It's full of teeny boppers and kids doing dances, and I'm like, I'm sure there must be some educational benefit to this platform, but I can't figure it out quite yet. Well, I uh, will be looking for your infotainment dances to come yeah. from TikTok. <laughs> I say somebody. I, thought I saw a physio account trying to do. I think it was the um, the brachial plexus dance. So they were trying to sort of demonstrate the different. Uh, nerves with the different movements but yeah. oh no nah. no uh in in uh medical school we had this uh i was in the anatomy club because i have a master's in anatomy and so we anyway i thought yeah let's keep this anatomy thing rolling and because i really did enjoy the pro sections and other stuff like that so we had to do this uh educate education project and i wanted to do the dermatome man like a dermatome kind of 
uh, rap, if you will. And so this, I, I am like, I wrote a rap, I, the whole thing. And uh, it's funny though, because I was presenting this to my my uh, advisor and he goes, yeah, I already did that. And I was like, wait, what? And this guy is in his mid forties, Canadian guy. And he, uh, he, had, he showed me this YouTube it's called the Dermatome Man Rap. And uh, it is terrible but he already did it i didn't have to do it i ended up doing some stuff in the uh in the abdomen in any case i will link that in the description below in addition to all of your information <laughs> just, just you to see the dermatome rap. rap yeah oh my god yeah it's uh <laughs> it's pretty interesting anyway uh adam thank you so much for joining us here on the barbell medicine podcast really good conversation no, thanks for having me really enjoyed it thank you too. sure All right, that's a wrap on this week's podcast, episode 144. We were talking with Adam Meekins, the sports physio. Link to all of his contact info in the description below, so make sure you check him out. Big shout out to him for joining us on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, and big shout out to you too for joining us. You can find us every Monday, wherever you get your podcast from, with the latest nuance in health and fitness. But before you go, wherever you're getting this podcast from, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, and we most appreciate your support. So have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thank you.